Thank you for downloading this sermon from Heritage Baptist Church. We are so glad that you did. We believe that biblically faithful, Christ-centered, God-glorifying local churches are the primary means that God has chosen to expand His kingdom. If you are part of such a church, we hope that this message will supplement your spiritual diet. If you aren't yet part of such a church, we would love for you to visit us. For more details, please check out our website www.heritagebaptist.co.za I think it is fitting to say Happy New Year. Uh, good to see you all compliments of the, of the season. I think New Year's uh, messages, especially the first messages in the New Year, tend to have an expectation that they are the messages that are going to help us as we set the tone for the year. You know, these are the messages that are going to encourage us, get us all fired up for all the things that we're going to be doing in the coming year. And so oftentimes we come with such expectations when we come to the, the first message within the new year. And so I have to say that if you came here this morning with that being your expectation, that you're going to get all fired up and get all the, the, the push you need for the year, I'm going to have to disappoint you a little bit because this morning, our message is going to be looking at suffering rather than us getting us all motivated, even though I think it is a, a, a needed message as we start the new year. Talking about not meeting expectations, something else or another area often that we have expectations about is that when we do come to a church, we don't expect to hear a message we've heard before. You know, you don't want to be sitting here and be thinking to yourself, didn't we hear that last week or last month or last year? And so again, I might have to disappoint you a little bit that I'm going to be preaching from a text that's been preached from here before. But fortunately for all of us, this was preached over 10 years ago. So I doubt there'll be any here who'd be thinking, oh, I remember that. But uh, yeah, so this morning we're going to be looking at a Psalm of David, uh, Psalm chapter 11. And really like most of the Psalms that we find in the scriptures, we don't get within the psalm, and we're going to be reading through it shortly, an introduction that tells us this is what was happening in the life of David when he penned the psalm. That David, as he was fleeing from so-and-so, he wrote down the psalm. And so we, we, we left having to figure out the context within which the psalm was written. But what is clear, and we'll see that as we read through the psalm now, is that David wrote the psalm during a time of turmoil in his life. Things were upside down. David was going through serious trials in his life when he wrote Psalm 11. And so that is the context within which David writes the psalm. As to which specific situation of turmoil he was going through, we are not sure. Now, commentators have two, two instances that they think uh, could potentially be the ones that led to David penning the psalm. The first one being when David was being pursued by Saul. When Saul sought to put David to death, that that could have been the instance under which David penned Psalm 11. The other one that has been put forward is that maybe it was when he was being pursued by his son Absalom. But either way, whichever instance that it was, the key here is that this psalm was written when David was, David was going through turbulent times in his life. And what I would like for us to do this morning is to really look at how David deals with these tough times that he was going through. I want us to think about and really consider the biblical truths that David reminded himself during these times of trials and testing. And so with that in mind, let us read Psalm 11 together. So if you've got your Bibles, please turn with me to Psalm chapter 11. 
I'll be reading it from the English Standard Version. Hear God's word. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. This is the reading of God's word. Let us now ask the Lord to help us in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we gather this morning, we come indeed with expectant hearts, expecting to hear from your word. And we ask that, Father, this morning, you may speak to each and every one of us, Father. May you help us to see the truth as you have preserved in your scriptures throughout the ages. Please, Father, do work in our hearts that we may indeed be encouraged and comforted. And in areas where we are not walking rightly, that we may be confronted and rebuked. We ask that, Father, you may give us an abundance of grace this morning. I ask that you help me, Lord, as I deliver your word, that I may be able, Father, to speak clearly and boldly and truthfully and with much faithfulness. And we ask for all hearers, Lord, that you may help us all to be saved and sanctified. Amen. As we consider this psalm, I want us to break it up into three sections. We will first look at David's stance, as we'll see it in verse 1. We'll then follow that up by looking at David's test, as we'll see in verse 2 to 3, and then we'll finish off, finish off by looking at how David stands in verses 4 to 7. So as David opens up the psalm, as we're looking at David's stance, he starts off in verse 1 by saying, In the Lord I take refuge. David here is envisaging that there will be instances in his life when he will need to take refuge, when he will need to flee to a place of safety. And he makes this declaration here that in the Lord he takes refuge. That his place of safety, the place to which he will run is the Lord. That that is where he will go to if ever he finds himself in situations where you know, he needs to find a place where he can be sheltered from whatever situation he's going through. That his place of shelter is going to be the Lord. You know, for us today in our modern times, I think we live in a very sheltered world where the concept of taking refuge might not be something that's very much fresh in our minds. You know, but I think th there are instances where maybe we, we can imagine what that is like. You know, if maybe you are into, uh, into hiking, for example, and you are out there, you are hiking in the fields, you are in the open fields, and then a storm starts. At that point in time, you need to run and find a place of refuge. You need to run and find a place of safety that can shelter you from the elements. And so David here is saying that whenever he finds himself in a situation where he is being attacked or he's under a situation where he needs to flee to be protected from whatever situation, he, the place to which he's going to run is the Lord. The Lord is David's place of safety. So he starts off with a stance here saying that his place of refuge is the Lord. And so he's committing himself to take refuge in the Lord and in the Lord alone. For we see there as he continues in the psalm, in verse, in, in, still in verse 1b, he says, How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? 
David is saying here to whoever is advising him that I have just told you that I take refuge in the Lord. So then how can you then suggest that I flee like a bird to the mountain? For I have chosen that the Lord, or I have declared that the Lord is my place of refuge and him and him alone. He's choosing to run to God and to nothing else. Because there are many other things that David could think about as to a place that he can flee to, things that can help protect him, things that can help bring him peace whenever he finds himself in a place of turmoil. You know, David could have looked to himself. You know, ultimately, David is a military man. He's a warrior. He's a soldier. He's conquered many battles. So he could have said to himself, whenever danger comes, whenever I find myself in situations of trials, I will look to myself, for indeed I am a warrior. But that is not what David says. David says, in the Lord, I take refuge. Alternatively, he could have looked to his own possessions. You know, David was a wealthy man. He could have looked to the number of chariots that he had, the number of horses, the number of men, all these things and possessions that he had and said, if trials come and if tough times come, if turbulent times befall me, I will look to all these resources that I have and I will rally my resources to make sure that I am protected and I can find safety within these things. Or he could have looked to his fellow men, you know, he could have looked to his friends and families, the people around him and said, you know, I've got this support structure that surrounds me. I can lean on these people. But that is not what David does. David says, in the Lord, I take refuge. And not, not only that, he doesn't also even look to the world. You know, he could have looked to the alliances that he has built, the, the, the friends that he has made with the kings and the neighboring nations to say that should a time of turmoil arise, I'm going to pull on these relationships and get all these people to come and help me. But that is not what David does. David says here, he makes a commitment to say, in the Lord, I take refuge. And so David's stance or his statement really is a statement of faith because he's saying here, I believe that the Lord is a place of safety for me and to him I will run. This is a statement that he's making out of faith, trusting that God is where his safety is. And so these are not just words, you know, these are not just, it's not just a saying that he says. He's not just saying this because, you know, it's the right thing to say. You, know, you might be sitting here this morning, you know, within the walls of a church, you know, and ask yourself, is this not the right thing for Christians to say? that in the Lord I take refuge. No, that's what Christians say. We believe in God, and so when things are rough, we run to God. But those are ways that we can often just simply say without that being really a statement of faith, without that being something that we truly believe in. Now, in Bedi, we have a saying that says, which translates to, a mouth can cross an overflowing river. It is easy to say things. It is easy to make statements. But do we really believe what we say? That when the time comes, we will say to those who advise us, how can you say to my soul, flee like a bear to the mountain, for I have told you that the Lord is my place of refuge. And so that is the stance of David here, as we see here in verse 1, that he says that he firmly believes that his place of safety is the Lord, that when he goes through turmoils, it is to God where he will run. But before we are quick to dismiss the so-called advisors of David that are telling him to flee to the mountains, I think it is worth considering why they're even suggesting such. You know, they are saying to him, flee like a bird to your mountain. But why are they even saying this to David? And this we see in our second point when we look at David's test in verses 2 to 3. So let us see now what is happening in David's life for them to suggest that he flee like a bird to the mountains. It says there in verse 2, 
For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. They are saying to David, the situation is serious. You are in imminent danger. The wicked are armed and ready to shoot at you in the heart. This is not a light situation that you can treat lightly. This is a serious and severe situation that you find yourself in. I don't know if you're familiar with a, with a bow, uh, that, with a bow and arrow. You know, that the bow itself is a bit of an archy shape. But here we are told that not only is the, 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 the bow arched, but they've pulled on the string that now the bow is bent. It shows that it is armed and ready. And they haven't just pulled on a string that is not loaded. We are told there that they've fitted the arrow to the string. The danger for David is imminent. They are not just saying to David, flee. They're saying, David, here, you find yourself in imminent danger. And therefore, it is right and fitting for you to flee. And so we can imagine the, 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 the fear and anxiety that would befall David or anyone in this kind of situation. And therefore, why such advice would then come to say, maybe you should run. And I think even for us that we might not necessarily find ourselves in, in the kind of situation that David is in here, as it is described for us in the psalm, where we are in physical danger. But there are instances that we go through in life where there is fear and anxiety, where we find ourselves anxious about what is happening in our lives. You know, it could be instances where you know, you, you're, really, you're anxious about how you're going to be able to provide for your family or to meet your family's needs. You know, maybe you run your own small business and things have just not been going well. You know, you've taken the time to do the projections, and as you look forward, you see that it's going to be difficult, and that can have anxiety set on you. Or maybe you've been looking for work for a long time, but it's just not happening. You're not being called for the interviews. You've got the qualifications. You've sent out so many applications, but yet it is not happening. Or maybe you've been trusting the Lord for marriage for a while and the years are starting to add on and it is not yet happening. And that can have a, an anxiety come down on you. You can find yourself in a situation where you're fearful and anxious. And so we, we can then identify, we can at least think of this kind of situation that David finds himself in here. And David here is facing an attack, a physical attack rather, but for us, oftentimes, you know, these are texts, as we think about them, they, they, they are not necessarily physical like they are for David, but they can often be spiritual attacks. You know, as I mentioned earlier that this uh, message was preached from over 10 years ago. Pastor Mike preached this sermon in, in September of 2013. And I think it is only fitting to throw in a one quote or two from the message that he preached back then. And one of the things that he said when looking at this psalm was that oftentimes the physical realities of the Old Testament point to the spiritual realities for us in the New Testament era. So in the Old Testament, we see David being attacked physically, that he's in physical danger. But for us, oftentimes, our attacks are spiritual. For the Bible tells us that you know, we are fighting against principalities and powers. And so we, we find ourselves often facing these spiritual attacks that are there. And these spiritual attacks are seeking to destroy us. They are seeking to get us to flee, to get us to abandon our faith commitment. Instead of saying, in the Lord, I take refuge. They, are, they, they, they push us in the direction of wanting to flee like a bird to the mountain. And as we look at the psalm, as we continue to see the situation being described here, things are really bad for David here. 
Everything is against him. See what they say to him there in verse 3. They say to David, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? They are saying to him, if the things that hold society together, if the things that bring stability to your life, if those things are no longer there, what can the righteous do? What leg do you have to stand on to still insist of standing in righteousness if things have fallen apart in this way? No, the things that bring you stability, the things that make the world work, if all of those things are broken down, what can you do? As I mentioned earlier that, you know, there's two instances that are, are, are thought of to be the context within which David penned the psalm. And, and I'm more inclined to think this was probably the time when he was being pursued by Saul. Because Saul was a king in Israel. And instead of using his power as king and using his authority as a king to bring stability and peace to David's life and to the lives of the Israelites, what did he do? He took that power and brought turmoil into David's life. He pursued him and sought to bring him to death. The foundation of society turned against David. And so now here the advisors are saying to David, if the foundations have fallen, what can the righteous do? How do you even dare to stand when the thing, the fabric that holds, is supposed to be holding everything together, is falling apart in this way? And so this is the situation that David finds himself in here. And I think even for us, again, we, we can imagine a situation where we are thrown into this kind of turmoil. You know, think of the, the relationships that we have in our lives that bring stability, the people we rely on. Imagine an instance where your parents or siblings or your spouse turns on you. The, the kind of turmoil that can bring into your life, how that can upset the situation that you're in. It can bring a lot of fear and anxiety into your life. Or think of instances where your, your, your government, which has been given the authority by God to reward good and to punish those who do evil, when your government takes that authority and turns it around and uses it to inflict pain on you and uses it to bring persecution into your life. When the, what's supposed to be holding society together starts to now crumble and actually bring chaos into your own life. Or we can think of situations where the moral fiber of society is coming apart. Where instead of people seeking to do what is right and to hate what is evil, instead of people seeking after justice, they start to pervert things. They start to desire and do wicked deeds. They start to seek injustice only. Greed starts to take a hold within society. Can you, you can imagine how, what, what that can do to your life, what that can do to your situation. Now, oftentimes, it's quite painful to watch fellow Christians when they're in the process of trying to get their driver's licenses where they go through a process where you know, they do the lessons, they book the slots, and then they go to try and, and, and do the test so that they can get their license. And in that situation, the officials who are tasked with simply evaluating them and giving them a pass or fail, fail them, not because they cannot drive or they are failing the test, but because they are saying, unless you act unrighteously and pay me a bribe, you're not going to pass. You know, how, what, what can that do to you now as a believer? That the, the foundations, you're doing things right, but the system is now rigged against you. The foundations are no longer holding. You know, they are saying to you, act unrighteously, do this unrighteous thing. You can see how that can cause someone to lose hope. How that can bring a lot of anxiety into someone's life. You know, when someone is going to test for the eighth time, not because they've genuinely failed eight times, but because the system is corrupt, the foundations are no longer holding. And so the situation can really indeed start to feel hopeless. 
As they say to David there in verse 3b, what can the righteous do? You know, how can you try and act righteously and try and stand in your righteousness when the foundations of society are no longer holding? It can be very difficult, especially in these kind of instances where it's beyond your control. It's the situation that you find yourself in. It's brought turmoil into your life, and there's not much that you can do. And so it is in these particular situations that the temptation to run comes. You know, and the temptation to run here is not a literal one. It is the temptation to abandon that faith commitment. That statement that says, in the Lord I take refuge. You know, when things are this tough, we, we, we tend to now think, you know, maybe I should take matters into my own hands. Because I have tried and tried and this situation is just so bad that, I, you know, as they say here, what can the righteous do? I don't think righteousness is going to help me in this kind of instance. And so maybe then you think to yourself, you, you reflect on what has happened in your life. You know, you've been in your third car accident. You know, relationships are not going well. Things aren't going well at work. Things keep breaking at home. You fix this, something else breaks. And now you start to think to yourself, maybe I should listen to my relatives. Maybe I should heed the advice of my relatives and go to the Sangoma. Maybe that's what I have to do. You know, or maybe you're thinking no, that that's not the context, the, the African context that you might find yourself in. Maybe in the more Western setting, you, know, you think to yourself, things are just so bad and dire that maybe I should just give myself over to drugs and alcohol. Maybe they will harm, help, they will help to, to numb the pain. Or maybe I must just cut corners. Maybe I must just pay that bribe to get the tender. Maybe I must pay that bribe to get my driver's license. Because the situation is dire. Things are tough in this particular way. And so this is the context within which David finds himself. And this is the context from which the advice to say, David, maybe you should run away. Maybe you should flee like a bear to the mountain because things really are bad. Things are not looking up for you. And so that is our second point, looking at David's test the situation that is, that is bringing all this turmoil into his life. And then now as we get to our third point, in our first point we looked at David's stance where he says, in the Lord I take refuge. In our second point we looked at David's test, the situation that he found himself in. And now in our third point in verses 4 to 7, we're going to look at how does David stand. How is he able to maintain his stance that in the Lord I take refuge? We have seen here the motivation from his advisors in verses 2 to 3, why they are saying to him, maybe you should run away. Now David responds and tells them why he's not going to run away. And David gives us here five reasons why he stands, five reasons why he does not flee. And we see this, uh, the first one in, in verse 4a, David says, I do not run away because God is sovereign. And secondly, David says to them in verse 4b, I do not run because God sees. And then he says to them again, thirdly, in verse 4b to 5a, that I do not run because God tests the righteous. And then fourthly, he says to them in verses 5b to 6, that he does not run or he stands because God judges and destroys the wicked. And then lastly, he says to them that he does not run because God is pleased with the righteous. Let us now consider each one of these reasons in turn. David now here responding to them starts off in verse 4. He says, The Lord is in his holy temple. 
the Lord's throne is in heaven. David here reminds himself and his advisors that his God reigns supreme, that his God is still sovereign, that his God still reigns in the heavens, that nothing is too big or too strong for God, that the situation that he finds himself in, it's nothing for his God who reigns in heaven. You know, he says to himself here that my situation might be upside down, my world might be in so much turmoil that I might be tempted to think that maybe God is no longer enthroned. But he reminds himself here that his God is enthroned in heaven, that his God still reigns in the heavenly places. David here reminds himself that his place of refuge is standing, that the place to which he committed himself to run is still there and it's standing strong. So he says, my Lord, the Lord's throne is in heaven. The Lord is still in his holy temple. Yes, my situation is bad, but my God still reigns. And so that is the first reason that David gives for why he's able to stand, why he's able to not flee like a bird to his mountain. And the second reason that he gives us we see in verse 4b, he says his eyes see. David here reminds himself that God is not unaware of his situation, that God is not blind to what is happening to him. That God sees. He reminds himself of what the scriptures teach, that the Lord does not sleep or slumber. God has his eye on him. God is aware. God knows. You know, he is not abandoned. He is not alone. God is very much aware of his situation. It might seem like he's alone, but he's not, because his God sees him. Now, I don't know if you, you might be familiar with this. Maybe it's more for the parents, but oftentimes when you see a kid playing in a playground, you know, they are there doing their thing, having fun. But every once in a while, in the corner of their eye, they glance to see, is my parent still there in the background watching over me? And then they continue playing, and then they check, and then they continue playing. And then there comes a point where they look and they cannot find them. They look and they cannot see their parent, and you can see this fear just set over them, this sense of panic, what is happening to me? That the person who is supposed to be watching over me is no longer doing that. And David here says to us, we ought not to have that, that kind of fear like that child because our God never loses sight of us. He's always watching over us. God's eyes are always fixed on us. And so David here reminds himself that his eyes see God is aware of his situation. And so that is the, the second reason David gives for why he's able to stand. The third reason David gives for why he's able to stand, we see again there in verse 4b and verse 5a. He continues in verse 4 towards the end. He says, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous. David here is saying, not only is the Lord aware of my situation, but he's actually involved in it. Not only is he aware that I'm going through these trials, but God is involved in the trials that I'm going through. These trials that I'm going through are not things that God is just maybe passively watching from far. He's working within these trials that I'm going through. And we see this helpfully explained for us by the Apostle, by James in, in, in James chapter 1, verses 2 to 3. Listen to what James says. James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, in verse 2 of James chapter 1, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
David here reminds himself that the trials that he's going through, the various trials that he's going through, the Lord is using them for the testing of his faith to produce steadfastness in his life. Not only is the Lord aware, but he's working through the mess. He's working through the chaos that he finds himself in. And he's using this testing to make him better. He's using this for his own maturity. We would be naive to think that, you know, we get saved and on day one we've got perfect faith. You know, that we've got strong faith on day one. For that is not how it works. It is only once we have walked the road with the Lord and we've gone through trials of various kinds that we've learned what it is like to hold on to that which you truly believe, that our faith gets to grow. That when, when we, we, we realize that when we say that we believe in God, it is not just words we say, but it is a faith commitment when we learn how to hold on to that. It is something that happens through these trials of various kinds. Nor do we start on day one as those people that know how to persist in prayer. It is only through time, as we endured trials of various kinds, as we spend time on our knees pleading with the Lord, that we learn what it is like to be those that persist in prayer. So David here reminds himself that the Lord uses this testing for his own maturity, that he uses him to, break, to build him up. As James tells us, that we know that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. And when that steadfastness has had its full effect, what does it do? It helps us to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is how we grow and mature as believers. The Lord works through these trials that we go through. No matter how dire the situation looks, the Lord is working through that for our building up. I do think it's important, though, as we are talking about testing, to also distinguish testing and temptation. Testing is meant to make us better. Temptation is meant to destroy us. Temptation seeks to pull you down. Temptation seeks to get you to return to your former ways. Temptation seeks to get you to sin, to fall away. And that is what the wicked do. That is what the devil does. But that is not what God does. God does not test us, does not tempt us. God tests us. And in this testing, he's building us up. He's strengthening us. And so as it says in the scriptures that when we are tempted, we must not think that we're being tempted by God, for he tempts no one. But God is able to work even through those temptations to use them for our building up. As David continues to give the reasons why he's able to stand, the fourth reason he gives is in verses 5b to verse 6. David says he's able to stand because the Lord, so he's towards the, at the end of verse 5, he says, he's able to stand because the Lord's soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. He says in verse 6, let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. David says here that he's able to stand because God will judge and destroy the wicked. He reminds himself that not only has God allowed what is happening to him, just because God has allowed it, it doesn't mean that it pleases him. Just because God has allowed the, the, the wickedness to befall you, that the wicked may come and poke at you in this way, it does not mean that it pleases God. 
Just because God is able to work through your trials, to use the terrible situations that you go through, to, to use it for your betterment, it doesn't mean that he's pleased by the works of the wicked. For we are told there in verse 5b that his soul hates the wicked. The soul of the Lord, his very being, hates and detests the wicked. He hates wicked deeds. God does not approve of those who practice lawlessness. And as such, all workers of iniquity and lawlessness will be destroyed. And we see there, David says, Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Their destruction is going to be decisive. Those who practice, practice wickedness, those who seek to come and inflict pain against God's righteous people, those who are upright in the heart, God will destroy them. And this decisive destruction that we see here is similar to the one that we saw in, in, in Genesis 19 from Sodom and Gomorrah. For how was Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed? In Genesis 19 verse 4 we read, Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. That, and we know how decisive and complete that destruction was. And so here David reminds himself that any of the people who practice lawlessness, any of the people who seek to tempt and pull down the Lord's righteous, they will face their day of reckoning. No unrighteous act goes unpunished. And especially here, as we're thinking about those who go against those who are righteous, because as they said to, to in verse 2 to David that, you know, the wicked are there ready to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. Or as they say in verse 3, what can the righteous do? These are attacks that are against the righteous. And here we are told that those who go against the righteous will be destroyed. For that is actually the same reason why Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. We read in Genesis chapter 19 how it was destroyed. But one of the reasons why it was destroyed, we see it actually earlier in chapter 18 of Genesis. In verse 20, Listen to what it says. It says, Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. There was an outcry against the evil and wickedness that was happening in Sodom and Gomorrah, and that outcry reached the Lord. And the Lord then came and he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah decisively. And so even for us now, we ought to be encouraged that when there's an outcry from us to the Lord against the wickedness that has been inflicted on us, the Lord will act decisively to destroy all of the wicked. And as I mentioned earlier that, you know, David was phys facing physical attacks, physical death that was facing him. For us, oftentimes our attacks are spiritual. You know, as I mentioned that our attacks are from the principalities and powers. But we must know that when the Lord says all wicked will be destroyed, it is all wicked, whether physical or spiritual. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul, talking about the resurrection and how we're going to be raised, towards the end of that chapter in verse 24, he says these words. He says, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. All of these principalities and powers will be destroyed. Nothing that works evil and wickedness against God's people will stand. God is going to destroy all of them. And oftentimes, I think for us modern people, you know, we, we often struggle with this concept of God's justice, God judging and destroying in this way. But we must remind ourselves that God, because he's just and holy, this is how he has to act. 
And those who are saved know that they are saved because God's wrath was poured out on Christ. That God did not hold back. That the wrath that we deserved for all the wickedness that we did was poured out on his son on the cross. And if he did not hold anything back and he poured it out on his son like that, how then can these other wicked people who practice all this wickedness be spared? Because God has to remain just. And so here David uses the fact that God will judge and destroy the wicked to encourage and motivate himself and to help him stand. That indeed he may continue to say, in the Lord I take refuge. And then the last point that we see for David, why he says that he's able to stand, we see that in verse 7. And he says that he's able to stand because God is pleased with the righteous. Verse 7 tells us, For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. What pleases the Lord are the works of the righteous. You know, we don't just look to God as, as, you know, as some cosmic bodyguard who just protects us, like you know, some cosmic ADT, you know, to say that we can call on him in the days of danger, but then it ends there. Here we are told that when we resist, when we refuse to compromise, when we resist to flee and stand, when we resist to act unrighteously, those acts of righteousness please the Lord. For it says there, the Lord loves righteous deeds. And therefore the motivation for us now is to say, let us adorn ourselves with good works, for that pleases the Lord. Let us fight and continue to stand, to strive to not give up, to give in to sin, to give in to this temptation, but rather let us stand. And when we do and stand for righteousness, that is something that pleases the Lord. Now, some of the texts that are often very encouraging to me in the scriptures are when the Lord commands the people who act or who have done well or who have walked uprightly. Whenever they get such commendations, it's something that for me as someone who's walking and striving to walk in a manner that pleases the Lord, it's such an encouragement to see the Lord commending people for doing that. And what such commendation that we see is in, in Acts chapter 10, in verses 3 to 4, speaking to Cornelius, the, 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 it says to us in verse 3 of Acts chapter 10, it says, about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly a vision of an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your arms have ascended as a memorial before God. Listen to these words that are being said here to Cornelius, that his prayers and his arms have ascended before the Lord as a memorial. Isn't that such a thing, a, a great thing for us to aspire to, that our acts of worship may ascend before the Lord as a memorial? Now, oftentimes the scripture uses words of, you know, the, 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 the eggs of worship ascending to the Lord like a sweet aroma. You know, let us strive to have our works of righteousness be works that are pleasing to God. That like Cornelius here, they may ascend before him as a memorial. That there may be a sweet aroma to our God. And let that encourage us to strive to not compromise. To keep on saying, in the Lord and in him alone, I take refuge. And not only is the Lord pleased with the works of the righteous, but he also rewards those who act righteously. And their reward is that they shall see God. We see there at the end of verse 7, he says, the upright shall behold his face. Those who stand still, those who do not compromise, those who keep on, they shall behold the face of the Lord. 
The Apostle John tells us in, in, in 1 John 3, he says in verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We shall see God. Those who are the children of God shall behold his face. In his Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus Christ in the Beatitude says in, in, in verse 8 of Matthew chapter 5, that blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That is the reward for those who persevere. That is the reward for those who continue to act righteously. And David uses this as a motivation to help him to stand, as a motivation for him to refuse to heed the advice that says, flee like a bird to your mountain. But I think as we come to an end, it is important to note here that no one is able to do acts of righteousness that rise to the level of pleasing God. You know, we can do some good works, but we can never really do the kind of good works that can be pleasing to God. Now, Isaiah says that, you know, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. I think other translations call it a filthy garment. No. Think of skoropo, you know that cloth that you use to just clean all the dirty things in your house. It's always dirty. That is the, the, what our, our, our righteous deeds are like before God. Because he is that holy. And no one is able by themselves to do works that rise to that level of holiness. If we, by our human nature and human power, do righteous deeds to God, they look like a filthy rag. By nature, we are unable to do righteous deeds. Unless we are righteous like God is, we cannot do the righteous deeds that rise to the level of pleasing God. No. If you have a palm tree, you cannot get figs. If you want figs, you must get a fig tree. And so if you want to produce the kind of righteous deeds that are, are, are pleasing to God, you ought to be as righteous as he is. That is the only way we're able to do this. And so the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, he tells us that for our sake, God made him, being Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become what? The righteousness of God. So it is only through Christ that we get to become as righteous as he is. And it's only by being as righteous as he is that we are then able to please God in this way. It is only if we are in Christ, for he is the one who pleases God. He walked perfectly. He obeyed the Father fully. Remember what God said of Christ at his baptism. He said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we can only get to please the father if we are hidden in the son in whom he is well pleased. It is only when we are in Christ that we then get to please God in this way. And so now as we come to an end, I want to say that you can only believe in this way like David and stand if only you are in Christ. If you do not have saving faith in Christ, you will surely flee like a bird to your mountain. And so if you are a believer this morning, be encouraged. In Christ, you have all that you need to stand and take refuge in the Lord. You can resist the temptation to flee like a bird to your mountain. But if you're not in Christ, well, repent now and look to him who can make you righteous so that you too can stand and not flee. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word.
We ask that you may use your way to strengthen us in our faith, to build us up, to help us to be those that will stand for you, Lord, not by our own strength, but by the strength that you provide. Help us to seek and strive to walk in righteousness, that we may please you as our God. In Jesus' name we pray now. Amen.